Well, I'm Alex Garrett, and it's been a busy week of great guests. And uh, my next one is uh, definitely a great guest to have. He's an executive in the entertainment industry, veteran of the entertainment industry. Uh, he's had his hands with the Grammy Awards, Survivor, The Amazing Race. But he's got another story that I feel like hits close to home for him, hence why Paul Freeman wrote about boxer Danny Green. And I want to know right off the bat, uh, Paul, thanks for joining me, by the way. My pleasure to be here. I want to know right away, um, you, you know, you did all this work with the Grammys. You did work with the Amazing Race. You did all this work um, with these different entertainment entities and television entities. But what about Danny Green uh, hits home for you and, and made you decide to write a book about him? I wanted to write a book about an American folk hero. And this guy sort of came to me. For years, I studied boxing. I did a little bit, just not professionally, knocking each other around, friends of mine and I in the ring. But I had a teacher who was a mentor of mine who knew a great deal about boxing. He was an amateur boxer himself. And we would watch matches together. And he would point things out to me, things about boxers, when momentum shifted, what a particular boxer was doing, how certain boxers would, would, would do well early on, and then they would fade later on. These were all things that were part of the strategy. And I also obviously appreciated the mano a mano aspect of boxing. You can't get much more pure than that. Two guys in the ring slugging it out. So it seemed to me a really interesting place to, to put a story about a kid who actually is a very good kid, very decent kid, smart kid, comes from a good family, but he discovers early on not only does he have intellectual curiosity, but he has a punishing left hook. I love that. And, and that left hook, I know that uh, people were amazed with, with him at Madison Square Garden. And mm -hmm. uh, the way you phrase a lot of that, you know, you, a lot of them talked as if they were there. And I guess that's true. But for those who really were there, they must have been really uh, wowed uh, by Danny Green's left hook there. Well, I, I, I remember going to see uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns going to a closed circuit TV in New York to see it in a theater. I think we were at the Beacon Theater in New York, which is this big old theater and we, we bought tickets and we sat there. I also remember going to see matches at Madison Square Garden and just that, that, that aspect of, of being there, witnessing something and not realizing it in advance, but after you do that it's history. And then it becomes lore, it becomes legend and everybody wants to say that they were there even if they weren't. And, and that's, I think you're, in, you're, you're saying when the book starts out, he's in, in this incredible match and it, it becomes part of folklore in New York City. Well, and I'm out of New York City, so we love, we love folklore stories about the garden's glory days of boxing, if you will. Yes. I mean, come on. And, and to know it goes beyond Ali and Fraser is also worth noting because when you think back to that time, you think of Ali, Fraser, Lewis, you know, he, you don't think of a Danny Green, to be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, he is a fictional character. So I felt that by integrating him into the zeitgeist, in integrating him into the reality of what was going on in New York at the time would be interesting. Um, without giving too much away, and I'm more than happy to discuss any aspect of the book, but you know, he makes it to the Olympic Games in Montreal in 1976. So as I'm reading about that, I'm researching that, I'm going... This would be the age he would be as he's growing up to go to the Olympics. But, but then I started to realize who was on that team. 
that was considered the 1976 spirit of 76 team was considered by many historically as the best boxing team to ever go to the Olympics. I mean, it had people on it like Michael and Leon uh, Spinks, John Tate, Leo Randolph, Lewis Curtis, Howard Davis was at that time considered the best box, the best amateur boxer. And of course, a young man named Sugar Ray Leonard. So oh. I'm thinking to myself, who, how could Danny possibly uh, be on this team? And I, I think when you read the book, you realize how, what happens to him and what happens to other people at the Olympic games in Montreal. Well, I'm talking with, uh, Hollywood and, and entertainment executive Paul Freeman about his book uh, about this character, the unexpected Danny Green from Mississippi to, I've got it here, uh, the unexpected Danny Green. So I feel like you wrote this obviously because maybe you have sort of your own personal story mixed in with, with Danny's, no? Yes, very much so. Let me just say something about the title. The reason it's the unexpected Danny Green is because his older brother is born before him, of course, he's older. When his mother gives birth, she is told by the doctor, it was a difficult birth, you won't be able to have any more children. When Danny comes along, almost two years later, they are so thrilled and so surprised. So his arrival on this earth is unexpected. And then of course, the things that happen to him are unexpected. And many, many of the, the, the situations he finds himself in are things that uh, he could never have anticipated. Uh, as far as my own personal stories, yeah, I lived in New York for many years, still have an apartment there, spent a great deal of time there, lived in Los Angeles and Hollywood, traveled, uh, had experiences. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to take Danny and his lovely girlfriend uh, and, and, and put them in these situations and see how they react. I mean, as you know, when you're writing something, as oftentimes the characters will start to take on a life of their own and they start talking to you and they start taking you places and your memory starts to come back in places you've been. So the, the, I, I like to let the characters run, let them go. And then maybe the next day, two days later, I look at it and go, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And I either decide, I either decide that's, that's a story I wanna pursue that's an avenue that I want to take, or maybe I pull them back and I send them in a different direction. Well, I was going to say, it's funny you mentioned romance because I feel like the boxing alone in New York in the fifties was romanticized. And yes, the, who they dated was a big thing, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, very much, very much so. And he, when he meets this girl, he's not great with women at the outset, but when he meets this girl, there's something special that goes on. I think we all can relate to meeting that one special person. Maybe in our lives, we are, we're, we're fortunate to meet one or two, but someone that we fall in love with, someone that's smart and, and strong and beautiful, and maybe, maybe a little bit independent and maybe a lot independent. And, and we discover that, that with that person, we can go further than we could alone. Paul uh, Freeman, as I was looking over your bio, I was thinking to myself, so this, this, uh, this Hollywood executive, this veteran Hollywood executive has had experience of a lifetime working on shows like Survivor, Amazing Race, and the Grammy Awards. But now he wants to go into writing. What inspired that? That's a big transition, isn't it? 
I guess it is, but I think we all have stories to tell. I think we all have a lot of untapped potential, myself included, Danny included. He, he, he discovers he has untapped potential. And, and the reason I did it is I sat down and I started with this idea. I started with these characters and I thought, how can I write about this guy? How can I do enough research to understand the time? And how can I integrate stories that I have from my life that I think might be interesting for, the, for a reader? Um, I, I actually did go through a hurricane in St. Thomas, uh, almost, almost lost my life and survived it. So that was something I thought, well, here's something I can write about and, and, and of course put, put Danny in that situation and see what happens, see what happens. Uh, so it was an exercise and it was a, a bit of a compulsion. And I've always felt like when you get an idea, you think it's a good idea, you have to take responsibility for it. Because far too often, I think we find ourselves going, God, I have that great idea, but uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll work on it. And of course, then it, you, you've committed yourself to it. And once I commit myself, I try, I try it very hard to follow through. Uh, I guess you loved boxing. So uh, when they demolished uh, Joe Louis Arena, I feel like that not only broke the hearts of Red Wings fans, but, you know, because of the namesake, Joe Louis fans. I mean, this was a boxing legend in the 50s and his arena is being torn down and renamed. It's like, come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I noticed that a lot. Not maybe so much in New York as I do in Los Angeles. I mean, here buildings that are 20 years old are considered old and they need to be torn down and they need to be replaced. And of course, now we have all these naming, naming rights that corporations pay billions of dollars for. And um, after, after the lease is up on a particular name, they get renamed. There's, there's doesn't seem to be an arena that doesn't have some sort of corporate signature to it now. And uh, it just, it just speaks to the kind of commercialism that that uh, sports is experiencing, uh, and that's one way that uh, that yeah. they're able to sustain sustain these these various uh, these various franchises, I guess. And in your in your neck of the woods, you have Staples Center now renamed uh, to right. Crypto Arena. It's it's yeah. Crypto.com Arena. But yeah. um, now that you mentioned the left hook, I've got to ask you this: being Hollywood, being an executive, there's got to be competitive. So, what has been? What continues to be? What made you realize your left hook that can get you further into this industry at a young age? I started at the bottom. I, I got a, a job as a page at CBS. And then subsequently I moved this great, great lateral move, man. I moved to the mailroom. <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, it was a hustle and it was uh, sort of a, a belief and it was preparation. That's, that's what it's been all about my entire life. Uh, again, this coach I had said to me once, he said, this is a business of who you know and timing. you got to knock on a thousand doors. Once you get through that door, however prepared you are and or talented you are, is going gonna, is gonna to tell you or tell people what kind of success you'll have. And it's kind of a silly thing, but I believed it. I believed it strongly, even when I was rejected many, many times. And finally, I got through the door. I showed some, something I had written and they took an interest. And after a long time and a number of tests that I took, I was able to get myself into a position where I could, I could work creatively. 
well, give me, if you want, uh, some Grammys uh, memories, because I feel like that's that's a huge thing not to talk about. <laughs> yeah, the, Gram- the Grammys are astonishing. It, it really is the premier award show. And the reason it is, I think, is because of all the live performances. And the one unique thing about the Grammys, which in the marketing department, we always look to exploit was the fact that these are unique pairings. You're never going to see these performers together again, like you will at the Grammys. So when Prince performed with Beyonce and they're performing their hits, it was astonishing. When um, Paul McCartney performed with Bruce Springsteen, where are you going to see that? When are you going to see that? What's the possibility? When Elton John performed with Eminem, it was like, what? This is just what the Grammys promised and what the Grammys delivered on year after year after year. I think a lot of award shows now have copied that format, but there was something that, that the Grammys revolutionized and the Grammys initiated. And that was amazing. And, and, and you also have performers from all over the world wanting, of course, to be on the Grammys. There's never a question as to whether somebody wants to perform because they recognize how important it is for their career and their record sales. And of course, the, the, the Michael Jackson years, I mean, all of this. Uh, yeah, that that been... certainly goes back. I mean, I think Michael, what did he, for Thriller, what did he win? Eight, eight or nine yeah. in one night. I mean, you, you know that picture of him standing there cradling these Grammys, thinking, I don't think he could carry one more. Huh. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, Paul Freeman, that as we talk about the Grammys, I just think that CBS TV has been a powerhouse in all realms. Uh, have you ever marketed sports? You're a sports fan, obviously. So have you gotten to market, you know, CBS sports and their coverage of the NFL or the SEC or, or those uh, as well, or even the masters? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't able to really cover sports or promote sports. I, I worked in the news division for a while in New York and that was amazing. And that contributed to my ability to write because I had to write I had to write on demand every day. It was a deadline. You had to deliver a script by three o'clock. So I liken it to going to the gym. To me, it was like working out with weights. And uh, that, that became sort of a reflexive part of my ability as a writer. With regard to sports, um, did a couple of things that appeared in our sports programs that promoted the, the uh, Super Bowl. But it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I, I, unfortunately, no, I, I wasn't able to really do sports promos. Well, I, you know, I, I hate, I feel like people when they're a page or in the mailroom can get discouraged by that, but you did not tell us more about that faith. Cause I think, I think people can learn from that. It, it just, it just was a drive that I had. And I felt like it, it was a, a, almost a compulsion. It was an ambition Maybe it was a little bit of a blind ambition. It was a, a desire to succeed. It was a desire to achieve. And it was something that came from my, my earliest childhood. It was once described by a friend of mine as this um, overcompensatory drive. I think when you're not the most popular guy in high school, you're, you're not captain of the football team, you're not getting all the girls, you develop this desire to prove yourself. And then as you get older, you realize some of those things that made these guys and gals successful in high school aren't quite as important as they are in in, in the real world. I also got to say that when I played sports, played a lot of tennis, I learned a tremendous amount about 
fighting for something, winning and being gracious, losing and coming back and fighting another day, feeling when you're down, going someplace within yourself for some inner resolve and succeeding. And then that sense of achievement, personal sense of achievement, always was something that, that gave me fulfillment. I, 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 I always felt like if I really please myself, if I figure out a way to be creative, I, I demonstrate that to people, the money will come. And that's what well, happened. The money did came. Up, did you grow up in LA? Uh, yeah, I grew up, I grew up on the West side in Los Angeles. Yes. So were you a Dodger fan? Were you all the sports fans or what was your childhood yeah. like? Yeah. Dodger fan used to listen to it at night in my bed, falling asleep, listen to the Dodgers. To uh, Vince Scully. Come on Vince, now. Can't of course, that. Vince Scully. The, I mean, the greatest of all time. No question. No question. He was able to really just tell, tell you stories and without missing a beat and, and, and you'd follow Vince and you love to listen to him. I actually had occasion to meet him once coming out of a store and, and just shook his hand and it was, it was a real thrill. Real thrill because he was he was truly truly or well, is truly a gentleman and extraordinary extraordinary as a broadcaster. Absolutely, and you know he did that all by himself at some point. He did the one one man team. It was yeah, pretty remarkable. And we will continue with former vice president of CBS On Air Promotion and Paul Freeman as he talks more about Danny Green and yes, the state of television in 2022. How does? analog TV, if you will, digital TV, if you will, your regular channel two, if you will, uh, match up with the streaming devices of our time. We'll talk about all that next on Alex Garrett podcasting. Paul Freeman, I'm going to ask you the, the, the million dollar question in a minute, but I know that you wanted to achieve something else with writing this book, The Unexpected Danny Green, how sports is portrayed in books and movies. Now, does that mean the way they're portrayed today as well. What, what's your goal with this book uh, as far as pop culture goes? I felt like I could write a character who is not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Many of us, most of us are not. He's not, he's born in a small Mississippi town on the wrong side of the tracks, but to the right family. And the reason I, I wanted to emphasize that is his mother is a grade school teacher. His father runs a lawnmower repair shop out of the garage. He, but he has this, this journeyman's thirst for knowledge. He goes to the library, checks out books, biographies, historical novels. He reads about the great men and women who have forged their way in our lives or created the lives that we have today. So in his youth, as a child, in his home, there's an emphasis on education. There's an emphasis on intellectual pursuits. So, of course, he's a young man like any other. He's, he's, he, he rebels, he fights back, he initiates contact, he does sports, but he also sort of has this kernel within him, this, this seed, if you will, of, of intelligence. And I thought that, that that would really be something that would make an interesting character. And I think maybe you'll agree that when you read the book, there's a, it's really a page turner. There are things that happen throughout that you cannot anticipate. The, every boxing match, there are about six primary matches in the book, all have different outcomes. Something unique happens. And all those things are based on true boxing matches. 
things happen dramatically that affect his life going forward and the lives of the people who he participates with. Did you approach this? Um, I feel like you're marketing the life of this Danny Green as if you're marketing, you know, the amazing race or survivor. Is there a similarity there? Yes, I think so. It's, it's, as you well know, it's, it's the two sides of the same coin. I mean, you spend a lot of time, a lot of energy working on, on, on the story, writing the story, rewriting, 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 and until you feel like you've got something. And then after that sort of solitary creative pursuit, you have to turn around and market it. And now I'm, I, I put on a different hat and I go forth into the world. And uh, I've been very encouraged by the response I've gotten by people who've read the book and by people such as yourself. So yes, it's, it's, it's very important to go forward and, and, and ring the bell and wave the flag and tell people about this book. And hopefully they find it enjoyable to read. Well, I'll be honest, I feel like, and maybe there's a judgment call, but Hollywood executive, when you hear that, some might be intimidated to talk uh, to that person, but in my view, hey, if a Hollywood executive is willing to talk about his or her experience, let's bring them on because they obviously have something to say. And it's not usual because I feel like a lot of Hollywood veteran, you know, in the, veterans in the industry just sit in their ivory tower and don't want to talk to the people on the ground. Look, I, along with my title as vice president at CBS, I always had the title of creative director. Before that, I was a writer. I was a writer producer. I was a writer producer director. I've been on the ground. I've been on the street and everything I did came from generating ideas. One of the reasons I think I was able to survive all those years through various regimes at CBS was because I could deliver creative every day. So I'm not the guy who, who sat up there you know, fearing for his position that somebody might one day discover he didn't belong. I always kind of felt, without sounding arrogant, I felt that I belonged there because if there was a problem, if there was an issue, I could solve it creatively. If we needed to generate ideas for a campaign, I could come up with ideas. Not just me, my team, the people I worked with, but I also knew that there was an, an, an untapped ocean of ideas that could be accessed. And that just came, some of it came instinctively, some of it came intuitively, but a lot of it just came from the, the, the continual exercise and routine. Like I said before, you go to the gym and you do curls every day, you're gonna get strong, strong biceps. If you sit sure. down to, to a typewriter every day or a computer, and you have to generate ideas because the clock is ticking, believe me, you come up with ideas. If you don't, then you're not there the next day. Paul Freeman is the Vice President of Creative Director at CBS. Okay, now that, now that you've explained the creative part, how do you compete with Netflix and this online streaming that is really, let's just be honest, taking the world by storm, how does uh, television keep with the online streaming world? I think people are realizing more and more it's kind of a niche business. There's specific shows that people want to watch, that people want to see. It's no longer let's appeal to the broadest audience we can. Now let's figure out how we can literally target 
and appeal to and market to and produce for a specific audience. That doesn't, that, that's not to say that the networks still don't have a dominance when it comes to live events or when it comes to something that the public wants to know about right away. That's why football is so still so popular because it's hard to not, it's hard to, to wait when all your friends are texting you and, and, and telling you what the results are. You want to see things live. So that's where the networks are tremendously successful. Same thing as we said with the Grammys. You want to see those events live. Um, we used to use a line where we'd say, you know, watch it Sunday night because you'll never see it again. Because we're not going to replay this. You know, this is real. This is history. This is live. Um, that's hey, Ed one Sullivan can only, had only one shot to do it weekly, right? Every night, right. every Sunday night. Exactly. Exactly. So how does, how does, how do, I think, I think what's amazing is look at all the programming that's out there. Look at all the options for people. I think it's tremendous. Uh, and, and the networks are moving more and more toward streaming services. Uh, CBS has got Paramount Plus, and a lot of their programs are going to be on Paramount Plus. So they understand where things are shifting, and they understand how to, how to uh, monetize the content. The bottom line well, is con content is king. And, and I'm not I'm certainly not the first guy to ever say that. That's for sure. But as long as you can produce content that people want to uh, consume and people want to enjoy, then you're going to be successful. Whether you're well, I got to say, I think I think Colbert has really despite what happened this past weekend, I think Colbert has actually become that niche where he could be funny, but also really tackle the times. I've seen him a few times interview these politicians and it's like this is a different kind of night show. And I know we all. I mean, you saw David Letterman. I don't know if you met him personally, but we all saw David at night. We all love David Letterman. It was an adjustment to Colbert, and mm -hmm. some have made it, some haven't. But the point is that he's being diverse compared to what these other guys are doing, I feel like. Yeah, I believe, I, I think you're right. And he, he can be bitingly funny, and he also can be very, very smart, depending on who his guest is and, and what he wants to draw from them. If he wants to draw something that's topical, that's newsworthy, he's capable of doing that. If, if it's just about entertainment and, 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 and promoting uh, a star's next project, he can do that as well. He has that versatility because I think he's a very smart guy. So you weren't the one, though, I'm guessing that didn't create the masterful music for the masters, right? That was not your design. I mean, it's just so catchy and everybody loves that was that was that what did you have any involvement with that as creative director um i i know I, I was not involved in in <laughs> composing any music although we did tailor we did get, take music and we tailored it for our particular shows the amazing race every year got a nice new show oftentimes we would grab something from from uh, the top 40 uh i remember uh using uh free ride and 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 customizing that for the amazing race come on and take a free ride which was, which was a great, great theme that we used one year. And uh, for Survivor, too, we would use various songs. That's very cool. Did you, with Survivor, did you ever meet Jeff Probst? I've got to ask. Yes, many times, many times. Jeff, Jeff's very, very nice guy, very smart guy. He understands the show so well. That's why he's, I believe he's currently the executive producer of the show. One of the right. executive yep. producers. And, and so he's not just the host. He, he understands exactly how, how that show works. 
I'll tell you a quick little story about Survivor. Tell me. Uh, when when uh, this was this was early in the spring, I believe it was of two thousand. The guy I worked for comes into the office. He says, "Hey guys, what do you think about a show where we're going to put people on a deserted island? We're not going to give them any food or water. We're not going to let create anything for them. They're going to have to build a civilization. They're going to have to see what what goes on." We go, "Yeah, that sounds like." everybody's fantasy. What would I do if I were shipwrecked on a deserted island? How would I survive? Everybody's read uh, Treasure Island or seen the New Yorker cartoon of two people standing on a small island with a palm tree between them and and wondering what's next. So it sounded like a, a really interesting concept. Of course, when Survivor came together and they dumped these people on this island, they threw them off a boat and they had them swim to shore uh, the rest is history. I'll tell you something. The first night, it premiered on a Wednesday night in the summer of 2000, and it was very successful. Not sure exactly how many millions of people or viewers we got. But every week, it was a 13-week cycle during that summer, we added 3 million viewers, 5 million viewers, every week, more and more. And by the end of the 13-week cycle, for the finale of Survivor that first year, 55 million people tuned into the show, 55 million. So it was a phenomenon. It was a complete and total phenomenon and we were thrilled. And the reason why I think is because the characters, the people, the, the infighting, the alliances, even the word alliances was never really even discussed until they said, oh, we have to form an alliance. And the backbiting, the physical competition, and that's something that that show had that no other show really did. And people were so curious because you were peeking in on people at their most extreme moment. That That is uh, really awesome. And that is the reality. And I think that CBS has, has done reality better than everybody else, to be honest with you. And, and you're obviously a huge part of that. Uh, I know they have a new book coming out also, uh, Hollywood's Unluckiest uh, un, uh, you know, dash luckiest su uh, superstars dash through un. Uh, I'm looking forward to that one as well. But one last thing is, as you tell about all the success, I can't help but notice the media world is seeing cuts by major television stations. Uh, how do the TV stations survive that? How do uh, budgets? Get, are you involved with that process at all from a creative standpoint of, of making sure your budget is cared for? year in and year out? Well, budgets, but I, I, let's put it this way. When I got involved with the promotion department, the marketing department initially, of course, I'm no longer at CBS, spent over 20 years there. The, I had no idea that that particular department, that particular area was going to be such a growth part of the industry. What, what has resulted and uh, what happens is that Everybody needs promotion. Everybody needs on-air identification. Every show needs to be put forth in the most attractive light so that people sample it. Our job, our report card, we get every morning after the show airs. Did people tune in? Did they not tune in? Were we a success? Were we not a success? So with all the changes that are going on and with all the budget cuts that are taking place, I think the marketing departments are gonna still have money. 
They need money because there, there's you cannot cut back on that. Why? Why would you? If you, you do, wouldn't. you just you disappear. You disappear in the in the media landscape, and nobody, no executive who runs these companies wants to see themselves and their 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 company and the thing that they're promoting disappear. So, marketing is a big aspect. Big aspect. All right, Paul, you've obviously worked with CBS over the last 22 years that you were there. And I've got to ask you anything growing up that you saw on CBS that inspired you to be in this business, hell, even on television in general, that inspired you to be in this business. I know you started at 16, you, you were starting to travel the world and then you became uh, settling in New York City after college. But what inspired your move into television? Was there any specific show any specific series even you know just what, what on television inspired i think like as a kid there were there were so many shows that i i loved to watch i mean whether it was clint eastwood and rawhide which was a great western i enjoyed uh silly shows maybe like uh uh, uh, uh my what was it my 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 uncle the martian uh my, oh, I forget what oh yeah the marsh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah Mork, like, well mork and mindy there was that yeah movie. yeah those yeah of course those shows and, and it just just things that I enjoyed entertainment. Now I'll give I'll give you a, a little secret here. Yeah. You know, as a kid, I was I was pretty rambunctious and constantly wanting to get some attention, as a lot of kids do, I guess, who are overstimulated. And um, I I wanted to pursue acting. So a lot of what I so I did. I studied. I studied with with a, a drama coach. I went to UCLA and studied political science. But I always had this thirst to perform. And that turned into the desire to write because as a performer, I wasn't really getting anywhere. That was not happening, but I thought I still have something to share. So the whole thing starts, I think, and started for me was my response to the stimulation of TV, the shows on TV, and of course, movies. So who didn't want to be a part of that? I think growing up in LA, uh, I didn't have any personal contacts but I just felt like somehow maybe I could wedge my foot into the door and I could get a job working in TV, doing something in production, doing anything that would get me uh, where I wanted to be, that would get me exposed to the people who might recognize, might recognize that I had some talent. Do you think CBS's face um, change in the sense of it went from sort of those funny comedies on Sundays to NCIS and it went into even Hawaii Five O reboot. Like it's known a lot more for action now than it is for comedy. Or do you guys feel like you have a, a good balance of both? I think there's a balance, but I think I think the dramas uh, like CSI were were tremendously successful, and they they proved so in syndication. It was my understanding. I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but the original CSI had such as they say, legs had such reach that that uh, it was a three, four billion dollar franchise. We're not talking about first run, second run repeats. We're talking about how that show was sold around the world and how. And, and so when money like that comes in after a show has already paid for its own production, billions of dollars, it's astonishing. And I think I think uh, the, the dramas maybe were able to show that they can make money. The comedies as well. I mean, look at Seinfeld. Everybody knows about Seinfeld and how he makes and his, his show continues to make money every cycle. 
every time they renew the cycle, which is what every five years or three to five years, another hundred million dollars goes, you know, goes, goes to that show. And, and, and you guys produced. have Becker. I love Becker. That was one of my favorites. And I think you also had King of Queens or was I, I'm not. Yeah. King of Queens, King of Queens as yeah. well. So you had quite a few on that, on that. And then the reboots. I mean, I, I think everybody was excited when Hawaii five O came back. Can't, can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was very successful. That ran for what, eight, nine years now, I think uh, maybe, maybe more. Y five O came back again. There was a franchise. There was there was a, a, a title that people knew, and a title that and 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 being in being in Hawaii, having a drama in Hawaii, a crime drama was something that people looked forward to, uh, especially well, in the winter. Especially in the winter, you know, when when people back east or in the Midwest, it's snowing outside, and they can watch a show about Hawaii, uh, and it's and it's interesting show, and it's well done. You got a hit. Well, uh, so you're out of CBS now. You mentioned Paul Freeman, but are you still connected there in some way, or or what's your next path? My next path is uh, taking the unexpected Danny Green and turning it into either a limited series or a feature film. That's where we're moving at this point. Well, would you mind keeping coming back and keeping us updated on how the journey of Danny Green goes? Because now I'm intrigued. I'm hooked. I would love to. I would love to. Uh, and the million dollar question, I don't know if anybody's asked you this on a podcast yet, but the million dollar question to me is this. Are you the unexpected Paul Freeman that grew up in Los Angeles, came out of Los Angeles and, you know, I don't know. Do you feel like your story was unexpected? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I think all of our lives, things happen to us that are completely a surprise, completely unexpected. And we have to just look at it and, and wonder and marvel at the incredible experience life is. Uh, every time I took myself and put myself in a new situation physically, something incredible and cool happened. When I moved to New York, I didn't have a job. I had $600, two suitcases, a, an old pea coat, and uh, a, a friend's couch that I could sleep on. And I, and I moved there with just the desire to live in the city, work in the city, and then things incredible happen to me. So yes, I think that what happens every day is unexpected. I think we have to learn to enjoy it, absorb it, and and uh, and use it, stimulate ourselves, use it to our advantage. Well, I, I'm so excited to bring you back. And uh, as your story, as Danny's story unfolds, and and your story really involves in the in the publishing and and writing world coming from television. I'd love to keep in touch with you and, and have you back on Alex Care Podcasting. It'd be my pleasure, Alex. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Oh, this, was, this was fun as well. I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting, and uh, we will talk to you soon.